Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Well, everyone, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Story Box podcast. Today, my friends, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Hill to the Story Box. Dr. Sarah, instead of me, gushing about all the wonderful things that you do and all your interest levels and the book that has basically created a lot of interest for many, many people around the world. This is your brain on birth control. I'm sure many of you listening to this would recognize that title. But instead of me gushing about you, would you be able to share with my audience who you are, what you do and why you do it? Sure. So, uh, so I'm Dr. Sarah Hill, and I um, I'm a researcher in the field of psychology, um, and I spend my uh, research career mostly studying women, women's health, women's psychology, and women's hormones. Um, and I'm author, also author of uh, "This Is Your Brain on Birth Control: um, How the Pill Changes Everything." And uh, I wrote the book because there is a lot of information that has been published in the last 20 or 30 years about the various types of effects that hormonal contraception has on women's psychology and behavior um, that women aren't told about. And so I wrote the book um, after my own realization that I had a total blind spot about the pills that I was taking and how they influenced me psychologically um, and that led me into the research um, behind what does hormonal contraception do and not do in terms of the way that women think and feel and experience the world. Um, and I put it all together for other people to read. And we are so grateful that you did. You also got, I believe it's you earned your PhD at the University of Texas in Austin, Austin, if I'm saying that right, with yes. uh, the great Dr. David Buss. Yes. which many people listening to this would know who he is as well. And you studied at the University of Wisconsin. Is that right too? Yeah. Yep. So why psychology first and foremost? What interested you in that? Well, so I've always been really interested in what motivates people. So like what, you know, what 
affects our behavior and drives us to do the things that we do. And um, I actually really early on, I got really enamored by cross-cultural differences. Mm. And uh, so uh, when I first started studying human behavior, I actually was studying it um, in, in anthropology. And my undergraduate degree is actually in anthropology because I was really interested and I, th- I thought it was so fascinating that, you know, here we have human beings and, you know, cross-culturally, if you look at the uniqueness of, you know, different types of behaviors and cultural traditions and that sort of thing, um, you see a lot of differences. But then at the same time, there's this like very core humanity that sort of unites all human beings around the globe, no matter what their cultural circumstances are. And so I was always really interested in that. Like, what what is it? Like, what is the core of human nature that allows us to be so similar and so different all at the same time? And I ended up pursuing my PhD in um, in, in earning it. Um, uh, in evolutionary psychology, because the, um, you know, the tools of evolutionary biology are actually super well positioned to be able to give us insights into that, like, what is the core of human nature? And then, you know, sort of, how can we also then explain the things about us that are, aren't the same. And at, when I first started in the field, um, in, uh, in psychology and, and throughout my, um, doctoral training, working with David Buss, Um, a lot of what I was interested in was um, sex and partner choice. So I was really interested in mate choice and uh, relationships. And I was particularly interested in it from the lens of the female brain, Um, because a lot of people in psychology and particularly in evolutionary psychology, um, a lot of them were men and were studying things from sort of a male perspective. And so there was a lot um, that I thought needed to be done in that research. Um, just to give an example, you know, there's this whole idea that, you know, because women are the greater investing sex, which of course we are, we have a nine month investment in pregnancy, whereas men have a very short minimum level of investment uh, for pregnancy uh, to occur that because of this, women should be more oriented toward long-term relationships compared to short-term relationships. And that's true. And, and, and I wouldn't question that. And there's certainly plenty of data that show that to be true. But I was also really interested in what are the conditions that sort of promote women deviating from that? So what are the conditions in which women will then short-term mate? And so just getting at some of the more nuanced questions with respect to women's mating psychology. Um, and so I've spent my my career, a lot of it studying sexual decision making and women and risk taking and partner preferences. And um, and then, you know, I also had done some research looking at women's sex hormones and how that affects um, women's consumer behavior and their motivational states. Um, and it actually wasn't until I went off of the birth control pill that I actually ended up getting interested at all in hormonal contraceptives and the way that they affect, uh, the way that women think, feel, and experience the world. I have so many questions, but I can relate to you on the interest of human behavior and why we do certain things, especially with the cultural differences as well. I've always wondered why in the Western world, like people in the US, for example, do things a little bit differently to people in Australia. I believe you noticed that when you came over to Sydney or maybe you didn't. <laughs> the way we treat each other, it, it, it also is really, really fascinating. Uh, but the an- anthropological aspect and tying that into sort of the evolutionary side of things, did you notice there were 
what were some of the similarities that you were able to link up with anthropology and evolutionary psychology? I mean, there's so many, you know, it's like they're, they're about humans are so united in, in our, in, in, in the, the reason that we're so united is, is, is because we share motivational states. It's like, you know, on average, most humans want to pair up, you know, and, and mate on average, most humans want to have children on average. Most humans want to have fidelity within a context of a long-term relationship. And just to give an example um, with that, you know, here's this core motivation that humans share that if they're in a long-term, you know, monogamous relationship that they um, desire fidelity in that relationship, meaning that, you know, their partner is not going to be also involved with somebody else. And so here's this core aspect of human nature, but then you look at the way that people have solved that it differs really dramatically across cultures. Yeah. You know, so for example, in the Western world, a lot of times people wear wedding bands and that's sort of their way of saying like, Hey, this person's, you know, off the market. Um, you can't, you know, have this person. And so that's how we solve that problem. Um, in the Middle Eastern, you know, Middle Eastern countries, they'll like veil women and keep them. And so that's the way that they solve that problem. And in other places, you know, in, in um, Sub-Saharan Africa, the way that they deal with that problem for women is, is unfortunately, about these clitoridectomies and trying to do things to make sex less pleasurable. And so it's like, you know, at the core, there's this core motivation that's shared. And then the way that it gets managed is something that differs cross-culturally. And, and that to me is like so interesting. And that's where all of those things kind of come together. It's just this idea that, at, you know, even when we look at the most different behaviors that we get cross-culturally, that ultimately, if you boil it down to its essence, it all comes down to the same thing. And it's a shared motivational state. And the motivational states that we've inherited are those that rely, you know, historically would have provided survival or reproductive benefits to our ancestors. What do you think about, so we have monogamous relationships today. What do you think about polyamorous relationships have you done much research in that area so <clears throat> excuse me so that's not something that i've done um a lot of like explicit research on but i will say this about that and that is that um you know there is a lot of research evidence suggesting that human mating is incredibly flexible Okay. And so I don't think, well, no, I mean, I don't think that like, like, for example, some people will say like polyamory is, you know, natural and that monogamy is not natural. Some people will say monogamy is natural and polyamory is not natural. Um, and I say that they're both wrong, um, that human, human mating systems are natural yeah. And that each one of us kind of figures out what the best setup is going to be for us in terms of how we're going to be able to best sort of manage the costs and benefits associated with mating and that it differs for everybody. And it differs for everybody, not only like inter-individually, where some people are like really, you know, like this type of a mating system and other people really like this type of mating system, but it also differs depending on where you are in your life. You know, generally what we tend to find is people who are engaged in, you know, poly amorous relationships aren't raising young children. Yeah. Um, and we know that one of the big reasons that we see social monogamy in so many different, um, you know, parts of the world and specifically around this issue of childbearing is because of childbearing and, you know, and children do do better, um, in terms of outcomes when they have more investing parents. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where, 
ultimately, you know, there's different strokes for different folks. Um, and evolutionarily, I think that, you know, it makes really good sense. Like it would make sense for us to have flexible mating systems. And I think that as human beings, uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that we do. So from an evolutionary perspective, the more healthier option for society and sort of raising children and mating would be more of the monogamous relationship as it were. Well, I mean, there's a lot of research that indicates that um, children perform better. I mean, in terms of their health, in terms of their, you know, um, academic achievement, their ultimate socioeconomic status, their mental health. I could give you a list 20 pages long of the different ways that um, that the outcomes of children tend to be better in, in two parent homes relative to, to one parent homes. There's also research indicating that kids do better when they have extended kin around you know, so it's like, that's even better than just having two parents. It's, um, you know, the, the real takeaway message is that children perform better or do better, fare better in terms of health and, and achievement and everything else um, when they have more investment. Um, and so um, anything that we can do to shore up the, uh, the investment of children is going to be something that's beneficial to them. Removing the more spiritual reason for this I've, I've always been kind of really interested in where this desire to connect where this desire to want to mate with say someone of the opposite sex for example where that actually comes from is it more in the brain is it more just in the the loins area like uh where do you think <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a combination. It's a brain loin interaction, right? It's the HPG access, right? The brain gonad access um, yeah. that is part of guiding that. Um, and, you know, we've inherited this motivational state that has been inherited by sexually reproducing species, you know, that are ancient, ancient, ancient. And even those of us who are newer, um, that is, there's a powerful motivation to pair up and to mate. And, you know, it's, that's a very inheritable trait. You know, when you think about this idea that evolution by selection, um, leads to, uh, the, you know, and it's, it's, it's all about traits being inherited from one generation to the next. There are a few things that are quite as inheritable as the desire for sex, <laughs> Um, because that is going to get passed down, um, whether you want it to or not. Um, and actually, it was really interesting. You know, I, I just had this thought, um, not just this moment, but this was a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking about women and um, and and also men, but I was thinking about this specifically in the context of women. Because one thing I hear from women is, you know, I don't want to have kids. So, you know, like explain that. Um, and, and what's really interesting about that is that ancestrally, women never needed to want to have kids. If you didn't want children at all, but you just liked sex, you were going to have kids. I mean, you were just stuck. You know, it's like the, the desire to be a mother is something that didn't need to be inherited until very recently, because it's only very recently that we had a choice about whether our sexual behavior was going to result in children or not. And that's only been within the last 50 years that we've had that we've actually had any sort of agency over that decision. And so, like, we didn't necessarily need to inherit a desire to have children. Right. And, and a lot of us didn't. 
Um, and I've got kids. I, I want my kids and I love them. They're amazing. But no, um, but for other, you know, for people who don't, you know, it's like nobody needed to really inherit that. You just needed to inherit the desire to have sex. And, um, and I think that that's why that is such a common drive. Um, whereas something like the desire to have children is a little bit more variable because it, you never needed to have that trait in order to reproduce. If you liked sex, you were a mother, period. I love the fact that you got literally no choice in the matter. The moment you have it, there's no way of getting around having a kid. Uh, you're right. kind of, you're, you're stuck. But in today's yeah. day and age, we've sort of invented all these ways in which that to prevent pregnancy, to give women, I guess, this liberation or this freedom, so to speak, mm -hmm. over their own body. So they're able to have the pleasure but not have to deal with the aftermath as it were, or the worry, <laughs> whether or not they are going to be a premature mother. Right. Yeah. What's so interesting about this to me is that now that we have this technology, of course, this is going to put selection pressure on the evolution of the desire for parenthood. Yep. And so now I think that what we're going to see is, you know, over the next 200 years, and certainly since as far back as 50 years, we're going to see that you're going to get a convergence where, you know, a couple hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, everybody, every woman or whatever, every man is going to want to be a parent or, you know, you're going to see the the variability in that a lot lower than what it is currently, because it's going to, it's going to, selection is going to do its thing and act as a sieve and then remove those traits that are incompatible with reproduction and, um, and the environment's changed. And so that changes the, the selection pressure and then that changes traits. So it's pretty cool. I think it's cool as well, but do you believe that in the natural order of things and the natural stages of evolution, as we've seen, do you think that having these technologies for future generations would, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like for future generations with the technologies and we're seeing the technology we've got now and the impact that that's having on women's hormones and everything else now versus mm -hmm. say 20 years into the future and what that's going to actually look like. So do you think with the natural order of things, the natural stages, do you think that having this technology is actually going to be beneficial to women? Well, I mean, it depends. On, I don't know what you mean by that, right? Because everything in nature is natural and that includes things that our brains created like technology, right? And so like, I don't know what that means. Um, because to me, it's like, yeah, we modify our environment, but all the modifications that we make to our environment are a product of our nervous system, right? They something that was created by our brain, which is this material thing um, between our ears. Um, and so like ultimately, you know, for example, like with the different types of technology that we have, we might find that people, you know, in the absence of technology are sicker and whatever, right? Because like, for example, you know, because we're able to save people who have debilitating illnesses or operate on them or whatever, we're able to keep them alive. And then of course, we're keeping those genes in the population. Um, and, uh, and so that's going to change gene frequencies over time and it may make us sort of sicker. Um, but in the presence of that technology, it, it's not that we're sicker, you know, it's, 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 it's just a new mod environmental modification. What, what I think is interesting, I mean, just in terms of a societal question, like a big societal question is ultimately when we have a lot of technologies 
that are sort of um, allowing for individuals with um, issues that would be incompatible with life or whatever else it is um, that, you know, are able to keep those individuals alive or thriving despite, you know, whatever this impediment that might be, what we're going to get is just a greater bifurcation between um, people who have and people who have not. Because if you have people who have these genes that, you know, might cause some problems, but then you can afford the technology to fix it, then you're great. Everything's good. Right. But if you end up with those genes now and you're in this other type of environment where you can't afford it, you know, the technology, then that's going to lead you, you know, uh, to be in, in a bad way. And so I think that it's actually going to lead to a greater um, sort of uh, widening of the gap between people who are, um, you know, like sort of the wealthy and the poor. Um, and I think that that's like, obviously, I mean, that's, that's really un unfortunate when we think about what society could look like when you consider, you know, continue to uh, deepen that chasm. I guess where I was sort of trying to go with that question was, I mean, humans, we have this ability to create all this wonderful technology. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's all good, right? Like there are some things that are damaging to humans and yeah. like, yeah, like BPA or yeah. microplastics. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, these things aren't, these things are objectively not good for us. Yeah. So all those aspects to the technological uh, advancements, so like just because we have the ability to introduce it doesn't necessarily mean that we should, especially when it comes down to the evolutionary stages, or are you saying that we should still introduce it and then work our way through the mess, so to speak. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess um, I, I would have to answer that on a case by case basis, right? Like, so for example, do I think that microplastics are a good idea? No, like, like let's figure something else out. Right. Um, if it comes to something else, you know, uh, there might be things that are really beneficial that, you know, are, that are then going to have unintended consequences. I mean, everything has cuts both ways. There's nothing that doesn't. And so just to give an example of this, I mean, we could give the example of, for example, technology that we use to save um, low birth weight babies, right? Do I think that this is a good idea? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that we should be saving low birth weight babies. Um, does that mean that like these people might have health problems that then, you know, that creates this healthcare burden later in life, um, for these populations, which have then of course is, you know, societally expensive and so on and so forth. I mean, it cuts both ways, right? It's going to be something that's going to have, it's got a negative consequence to it. But, um, I, I would still say on that case that it's, this is something that absolutely is, is a wonderful invention and we should keep it as it is. Um, but anything that you introduce, you know, to the environment, particularly something that's going to have an effect on fitness, um, is going to have consequences, you know, and, and, um, and some of them are going to be good and some of them are going to be bad. And I think you have to, on a case by case basis, decide whether the, the benefits are outweighing the costs. I have to agree with you on that. I guess going back to sort of the mate choices and why men choose women or is it more women choose men? Is that a case by case basis as well? Like why are some of the, what are some of the reasons 
men choose women and women choose men? Well, I mean, so, you know, there's the, everybody has a somewhat different rubric when it comes to partner choice. Right. And uh, I think that, um, again, this is a case by case basis. Everybody's is a little bit different, but, you know, we know that there are certain types of traits that women tend to be dialed into when it comes to partner choice. Um, so when women are choosing somebody for a long-term partner, they tend to pay attention to things like provisioning ability and, you know, potential as a father and caregiver. And also, is this somebody that I can work with in tandem, you know, to solve life problems and then also physical and sexual attraction. So does this person possess the qualities that I find attractive in a, you know, a sexual partner and, um, and men, you know, zero in on similar types of qualities, but men of course are more tied into or, or, or clued into qualities in women that historically have been linked to fertility, um, and the ability to reproduce, because of course, this is a trait that women vary in to a much greater extent than men, because women go into menopause, which means that we have a very short reproductive shelf life. Um, yeah. And so, of course, men who were dialed into that would have passed down a greater number of their genes um, than men who weren't really paying attention to that. So, you know, it's like those kinds of qualities. So both men and women do choosing in humans. Um, especially when we're talking, you know, in a long-term mating context, because both are investing so much um, in sort of the, this individual, and then the possibility of potentially having shared um, genetic lineage after the fact. Why did you choose your husband? <laughs> um, it was a combination of, I mean, it's those qualities, right? It's the, um, it's the intangibles, um, which are the things like provisioning ability and, um, and also is this somebody that I can get along with? Um, because it's like, you know, one of the, and I think it was leading and cause or, or uh, John, John Tubi and Lita Cosmides. Like, I think that they're the ones who discussed this in some of their work, but it's essentially like, if you're involved in a long-term romantic relationship with somebody you're entering, it's really a cooperative, a long-term cooperative relationship. And so a lot of times when we're choosing a partner, we're choosing somebody who's going to be a good cooperation partner for us. You know, so it's like, um, and that was certainly the case for me is like I choose somebody that I know is going to be a good cooperation partner that I can share responsibilities with. And then also having, you know, uh, sexual attraction and then also having the sort of good dad, you know, um, provisioning abilities. Um, I think that that all of those things uh, played a role in my in my decision making. Do you believe that we have more than one, I guess, mate? out there in the world and it comes yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that there's, I don't believe in like a soulmate. I don't think that that's real. Um, uh, I, I think that we, that there's some people that will have better romantic relationships with than others. Um, but I, you know, and, and I guess that you could call somebody who's just like a uniquely well positioned, like, like this person is uniquely qualified to be my mate. Um, that, you know, we might call that a, call that a soulmate, but I do think that, um, a different, you know, in different relationships that they're fulfilling different needs. I think about different relationships I've had at different points in my life and, um, and there were different types of men and they were solving, I mean, they were who I needed at the time, you know, it was like, this was the perfect person for me to be with during this time. 
And, um, and then, you know, there can, and then, you know, when that relationship sort of starts to sunset, you can find somebody else who's like uniquely positioned, um, to fit that role as your partner during that time. And, and, um, and I think that, you know, that can change depending on your life circumstances. And I think that one of the, um, one of the, you know, sort of interesting challenges of long-term monogamy is just that idea of, you know, people changing and then like, what does that mean then in terms of the romantic relationship and like how to keep couples changing together in tandem to enough of a degree that they're still fitting the um, relationship. But, in, and so one other thing sort of bearing on this, and this is I mean David Buss, since we talked about him and you said your listeners are all intimately familiar with his genius um, I, over COVID, um, I had, uh, cause I teach, I teach a class on evolutionary psychology and I had, um, I had my students cause it was COVID and we're all locked in. Um, I had reached out to David and I was like, Hey, like, what would you think about doing, um, a Q and a with me over zoom where my students ask questions and I read them to you and then you give them answers. Cause they'd been reading his textbook and, and they loved it. It was a really great session. But one of the things that we asked at the end, cause my students were really interested on in David's hot take on what, you know, what are like, what are the, the, um, sort of absolute must do's um, in romantic relationships, like, like what's the best mating advice that you have? Um, but then also like, what are, what is the biggest misunderstanding in mating and human mating? And when he said, when we're talking about the biggest misunderstanding, he said that he thought the biggest misunderstanding, and I absolutely fundamentally agree with this, um, is that the idea that, um, that we judge a relationship as a success or a failure based on its duration, Mm-hmm. Um, and that we consider a relationship successful if it lasts a long time and that we consider it unsuccessful if it didn't, when you can have incredibly successful relationships that run their, they run their term mm-hmm. and you can have relationships that are absolutely terrible, but the couple stays together, you know, just, you know, whatever, usually for the kids or, you know, whatever, or for the community or whatever it is. And, um, yeah. And so I, yeah, so all of that is like running around a circle, but um, no, I, I think absolutely there can be more than one right mate for somebody out there in the world. And, and you know, and some people may only have one perfect mate and other people may have lots of different mates that sort of suit them at different points in their lives. Or, you know, if they're polyamorous, they might have lots of different mates that suit them at the same time. Which I Everybody's- think, I, yeah, I personally couldn't be polyamorous. It just would kill my heart. <laughs> All of that. Yeah, I don't, I honestly, um, I... I think it's so interesting. And whenever I meet people who are polyamorous, I'm like, I could just, I'm like, just, I want to ask them. I always ask them a ton of questions because I can't quite wrap my head around it. You know, like I can wrap my head around like, so because, you know, I was like, I'm a, I'm a selfish human being. Right. So it's like, I can wrap my head around the idea of having multiple partners, (laughs) you know, like I could do that. Right. It's It's like great in theory. But then like the idea of like knowing that your partner is out there, you know, like I just, that part, I would not be able to handle. I don't think I'd be able to handle the other part of it either, just because it's like, it would be too conflicting, but certainly with the other side of it, I just like, can't imagine, you know, jealousy is such a powerful emotion. Like I can't imagine navigating that. Yeah. I was actually interviewing two people that were in a polyamorous relationship for quite some time. And the guy, he initiated it and 
there was a, a point in the relationship where she found somebody else and he told the story of how he was on the bathroom floor dry heaving and then actually vomiting from the sheer pain of knowing that his woman that he actually loves and has been with for a long time is having sex with another man. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it's like jealousy for men is quite heightened. (laughs) So he's trying to put that away knowing full well that his woman was with another man. So like the, the mating element to that was just like he, he was not working really well with it <laughs> at all. And I don't blame him. I would be the same. But yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be able to handle it. I wouldn't be able to handle it. Like I love I love the idea of it in theory. I'm like, well, in theory, this sounds lovely. And like, wouldn't it be everybody can sing Kumbaya around the campfire and it'd be great? But I just didn't work. I just I yeah, my I get jealous enough as it is. And I, right, I don't know right. whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm trying to work that out in my right. own life. Like, what what do you think about jealousy? Do you think it's it's a good thing in some cases? It's it's just like the desire for sex. I think it's a very inheritable trait, right? Because it's like if you are if you experience that feeling of um, thinking about your partner being, I mean, that would clearly be adaptive in terms of promoting, you know, behaviors that are vigilant toward the maintenance of the relationship. And, um, and so I like, so I think it's a good thing in that way, but I think that the experience of it is obviously not pleasant and it obviously can lead to some really dark behaviors, like not always like jealousy. I I think, you know, one of David's famous papers is like from vigilance to violence, right? Mm -hmm. And this is idea that jealousy can inspire like great acts of love and care, like towards your partner to keep them happy. But on the other hand, it's also been known to motivate some dark behaviors where, you know, people will, you know, abuse their partners. And obviously these are, that's like an extreme and obviously doesn't happen most of the time. But so like whether like, jealousy is sort of good or bad, I think depends on what you do with it. How do hormones play a role in choosing a mate? Or do they? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, there's been research now for several decades showing that um, that when estrogen is high across the cycle, that this increases women's attunement to um, to testosterone-related cues in men. Um, and so, you know, that alone is sort of uh, shows that there's a pretty robust association between those things. And you sort of see it turning on and off like a faucet. When you look at the cycle and as estrogen levels change across the cycle, you see, um, you see, uh, the desire for these kinds of cues in men turn on and off. Um, and so we know that that is something that's true. And we also know that, um, interestingly enough that, men and women with higher levels of testosterone are attracted to men and women with higher levels of testosterone. Um, and researchers actually thought that it was going to be the opposite with like, you know, women with lower levels of T like preferring, you know, lower levels of T or men with higher levels of T preferring women with low levels of T, but that's not what they find. And, um, so that also shows that there seems to be some sort of a, you know, a relationship between testosterone and certain types of partner preferences. Um, and I've also gotten emails. So, um, I've gotten emails from readers 
And I've had more than a big handful of them at this point of women who've had the experience of going on or off the pill and having that nudge them in and out of either heterosexuality or being a lesbian or bisexual. Ah. And so what it will do is for some women, they go on it and, and they thought they were bisexual their entire life. And then all of a sudden they go off it and they're like totally heterosexual. Or I've had it also where like they were a little bit bisexual and then they realize they're totally a lesbian or they're a lesbian and then they are bisexual or they're straight. And so it seems to be kind of nudging, um, you know, hormones seem to nudge our preferences. And I think that what happens, because, you know, sexual orientation falls on a continuum, you know, it's not just like two little pots or three pots. And then you like, it's, it's this like, you know, normal distribution. And I think that when you have people who are kind of on the edge that, you know, because hormones kind of tweak preferences, that they can sort of nudge them into the next category um, for some women and then nudge them right back off when they, um, when they get off of it. And I've gotten that email. Like I said, I've, I've gotten more than a dozen of those emails from readers who are like, Hey, I've got to tell you this funny story. And I mean, I, and honestly, it, it makes a lot of sense because like we know, um, and we, we researchers have sort of known for a while that sexual orientation, there's hormones are playing a role. Yeah. And um, like some role. And so the idea that when you change your hormones, that for some people, it can just kind of nudge them right out of their sexual orientation, I think is also, again, um, speaks to the role that our sex hormones play in terms of partner attractions. What percentage is there a percentage that plays a role? Like I have no idea. No, yeah. I've none. I mean, my guess is it's like, I mean, it's just like one factor of many. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, I've, I've absolutely no idea how much. And like I said, I don't think, for example, that women who are on or off the pill and then go on or off the pill. So do the opposite thing, um, that what you would get is this like super duper, for example, like heterosexual, you know, obligatorily heterosexual woman, she goes on or off the birth control pill. And then all of a sudden she's just like wildly lesbian or something, or that, you know, that you have a woman who like has this preference for these like super masculine men. And all of a sudden she wants an accountant from, you know, whatever. It's like, I, I don't, I don't think it works that way. I think that essentially it's like we have sort of our place and our hormones can kind of nudge us a little bit this way or a little bit that way. And that can be enough to be a big disruption. Like in the case of, if it sort of knocks you out of your, sex, your usual sexual orientation, that can be a little bit disruptive. Or if you get in the cases um, that, you know, we've seen reported in research and I've had women email me about um, where they chose their partner when they were on the pill and now they're off of it. And they're like, Oh, I'm not, that attracted to this person anymore. Um, you know, you hear that too. And all of those things are consistent with hormones playing a role in attraction. And of course, what this means is that when we mess around with our hormones, this can lead to changes in attraction. Um, it also could mean that as we age and our hormonal profiles change, that this could also lead to, um, lead to changes in partner preferences. This stuff is fascinating. So you should rebrand instead of the birth control pill, you should rebrand it the sexual orientation pill. <laughs> well, 
I don't think that the, the rate at which that happens is so incredibly rare that yeah. I don't think that would be worth the rebrand. But I do think that it's really interesting. I, and it, I mean, for me, the thing that's most interesting about it is just how illuminating it is in terms of helping us better understand what are the factors that contribute to sexual orientation. Yeah. And this idea that you can kind of nudge it around a little bit by, you know, sort of doing this with hormones or that with hormones, I think is um is really uh, is really interesting and and worth investigating further in research and so i think it's cool i just kid so it's all good <laughs> uh we can dive further into i guess the female uh side of things especially when they're on the pill what would happen this may be a dumb question but what would happen if a man was to take the pill um if a man was to take the pill I think that it would actually have a similar effect that it does on women because the, the way that it, the pill works is that it, I mean, obviously it wouldn't prevent ovulation, but, um, but it would prevent the synthesis of, uh, of, of sex hormones um, because the way that the pill works is um, by the synthetic progestins that are in the pill, it, um, it sort of tells the hypothalamus not to tell the, um, pituitary to stimulate the gonads to produce sex hormones. And I'm not a hundred percent positive that it would work, um, the same way, um, in men, uh, just in terms of testosterone production, but I'm pretty sure it would, because the thing that it prevents is the release of, um, LHRH and, um, luteinizing hormone and all that, and all that's required in sperm production. And then you would get an increase in estrogen because a lot of the hormonal birth control that's out there has estrogen in it as well. And so my guess is that you would have a slightly feminized, de somewhat demasculinized male. So lower T yeah. and then some estrogen. Yeah. And so I'm what does that look like? I don't know, but I probably don't want to hang out with him. <laughs> probably not somebody I want to spend a lot of time with I don't know me don't either know. <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you yeah, that would yeah, be yeah. really really strange but then again I think they are doing something similar they're giving children these cross-sex hormones which mm. is another I think dangerous thing for children that haven't even gone through puberty yet no, I completely agree. Yeah, it's stunting something that is actually natural, which the implications yes. just wild. Yeah, no, the idea of stunting development of the HPG axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, um, which is a communication pathway between your brain and your balls <laughs> or your brain and your ovaries. And, um, and the idea of not allowing that to fully develop before allowing, um, people to make decisions about like transitioning, for example, I think is, is wrongheaded. Like yeah. I can understand the motivation to like want their child to be comfortable in their own skin and to have their gender match their, um, their biological, uh, sort of hormonal profile. But, um, I don't think it's wise because it's, it can, it can lead to, um, permanent brain development differences that are irreversible. And I feel the same way about the birth control pill during adolescence. Um, and in the case of birth control pills in adolescence, 
Like on the one hand, in some cases, it still might be the best choice. Just if you've got a sexually active teenager who's not going to be responsible with other types of birth control, I think then obviously we need to do something because teenage pregnancy is a much worse fate, um, particularly in the U.S. right now with uh, outlawed abortions in a lot of states. Um, That's a much worse fate than brain development differences um, that we don't quite understand yet. But the idea of putting girls before they're done developing on hormonal birth control for things like acne, I think is criminal um, because it can affect brain development and stunt the development of their HPG axis. And, um, and this is routinely done. Like, I don't, I I really don't understand um, the continuity of that practice. Mm. It makes no sense to me. It's cruel to me, like that people would do this to a child that, doesn't have the brain capacity yet to fully understand what it would do to their brain because their brain is still developing and you're not only chemically castrating them, you're impacting their brain development and function. So you're stuffing them up completely in that in that instance, which is just barbaric in my yeah, in my opinion. Um, and for young young girls, like I, I wanted to ask for, is it wiser to put them on the more is it wiser to put them on the birth control pill versus just giving them the morning after pill? I mean, it would depend, right? If it was like a sex on a, a one-shot sex activity, then I would say yeah. Um, but if you're having to take the morning after pill over and over and over again, I mean it's essentially gonna do the same thing. Right. And it's gonna be more expensive and it's gonna feel worse. Right. So they both work on mega dose. It's a pretty mega dose of hormones that you get with that. Right. So what does it actually do? Like if you, so the the birth control pill, just I'm trying to fully understand it. Um, So the birth control pill on a longer term makes women miss their period, but Mm. the morning after pill basically just cleanses out any sperm that would have been there. Is that right? No. So the birth control pill works by preventing ovulation. And so um, it essentially tells the brain not to tell the ovaries to produce an egg by having that level of progestin. Um, And so that's how that works is just preventing ovulation. So then there's no egg to fertilize and then there's no pregnancy. That's the primary mechanism by which it works. But the morning after pill, my understanding of it is that it just destabilizes the endometrial lining um, to such a degree that you shed. And so um, what that means is that if any implantation were to occur um, or try to occur, it wouldn't be able to. That is essentially like, you know, it's like Humpty Dumpty in the wall, right? Where it just all comes crumbling down and all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together again. So um, it's like becomes an inhospitable environment for implantation of an embryo and that prevents pregnancy that way. How effective is the birth control pill? If you use it correctly, I think it's like 98 to 99% effective. It's really effective. And the 1% of the women that it doesn't actually work. Yeah. I like, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know what is up with them. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that they just say that they're using it correctly and they actually aren't, or if their bodies are just like, eh, like, meh, sorry, I'm ovulating anyway. 
Um, so yeah, I don't know what the story is with those one percent. So basically, is rejecting all of the chemicals that the pill is. That's that's actually pretty clever, to be honest with you. I think it is. Yeah, the body is like, um, is like, ah, yeah, exactly. Like we figured you out. <laughs> yeah, we actually we tried to scare women, and not because we want we're mean and terrible, but because we were doing a study. And we were interested in changing women's beliefs about the costs of sex. And so we created this fictitious news article about the development of birth control tolerance syndrome <laughs> and how women were becoming increasingly tolerant of their birth control and that it was like causing it not to work anymore. Um, because we wanted to see if you tell women that, like, does that make them all of a sudden you know, as a result of that, they sort of see sex as being more costly. And then does that make them choosier about their partners? And, um, which it does. And so anyway, we, we, we did that. And of course we had to have an extensive debriefing, right? Where it's like, this isn't really a thing. Don't worry about this. Um, because yeah, you can only imagine. Not a placebo effect. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Like sugar pill (laughs) kind of deal. So yeah. Who developed, do you know who develops the birth control pill? Um, I mean, a lot of different companies too. Like, was there one person that just came up with, hey, this is a revolutionary pill? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it was like, I don't know, it was like 50 plus years ago now, almost 60 years ago. Maybe it was 60 years ago now. Um, But it, you know, Margaret Sanger is the person who's credited with like widespread access to the birth control pill. Um, My understanding of it was that it was originally created by somebody who was affiliated with the Catholic Church. And essentially, the Catholic Church at the time um, was anti-contraception of all types. And so what this guy had figured out was, um, you know, he was trying to create something that would be natural, but would also prevent pregnancies. And so he created this pill that mimicked, um, you know, the cycle. And then you have that placebo pill to allow women to bleed. And so it was his belief that this was sort of a more natural form of birth control um, and that uh, that it should be acceptable by the Catholic Church. And then, of course, it was not. And, um, and he did all that hard work for nothing, but it gave the rest of us the birth control pill. So, And it made the pharmaceutical companies very rich. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, certainly. Um, it didn't, it didn't hurt them. That's for sure. So has the birth control pill been, I guess the sexual liberation and sexual liberty or sexual revolution that have said for women? Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm sorry. What I, you just, I missed that last part. The sexual revolution with women Did, was the pill responsible for that. Yeah, has it been what they intended it to be? Has it been this great uh, sexual revolution, sexual liberation for women? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, it's like when you remove from women the consequences of sexual behavior, they're going to act more like men. Um, (laughs) And because, you know, it's like the thing that keeps women, one of the things, and there's a lot of things, you know, like we've inherited the psychology that's very choosy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that keeps women um, sort of cautious about sexual partners is the possibility that they'll end up with this nine month pregnancy plus, you know, and when you tell, when you remove from women that potential outcome, it totally frees up 
you know, women, the, the opportunity to um, have sex for pleasure and pleasure alone. And without having that dark storm cloud of a potential unwanted pregnancy looming over their, over their shoulders. And so for some women that they've noticed it has impacted their mental health and Mm. all of the other negative side effects. Why is it that not many women these days are fully aware of the dangers that come with the, or taking the pill when doctors just prescribe it? Right. I think that, um, you know, they aren't being talked to very in depth with their doctors. I mean, most doctor's appointments are super short And, um, and so, you know, women aren't getting a whole lot of education about what it is that they're putting into their body and what the range of side effects are that are potential from taking it. And, um, unfortunately we're at a place societally where, you know, the best solution for a doctor to deal with a patient is to just put them on a medication and they don't really have a whole lot of time to talk about what the range of effects are. And then they're, they're on to the next appointment. Um, and of course this is something that, puts a lot of onus on women to educate themselves about the range of effects that are possible. Um, and so I, you know, like I wrote my book certainly to help fill in some of those gaps. Um, but I think that it is important for, um, women to educate themselves, um, on the range of effects of anything that they put into their body, you know, and I've got to say that the like current, you know, like the, um, millennial women and women younger than that, um, have been a lot more, proactive with that than women in my generation. So, you know, younger women are the ones who are the, the sort of impetus behind tampon companies having to put labels on their boxes, explaining what is in the tampons. And they're also the ones who are tend to be more gravitating toward natural approaches. Whereas, you know, women, I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, it's like, we would just take stuff. (laughs) It was like the doctor would give it to us be like, yeah, all right, that's okay. And then like tampons, like, sure. Um, like nobody really, you know, thought about it. And I, I do see that there's um, increasing ownership of health decisions that's being taken by um, by younger people relative to what was seen when, when I was um, in my 20s. What am I missing about the birth control pill that I may not have asked you yet? Mainly because I'm... Um- I mean, you know, I think that the thing is, uh, like I would, I would just say like my summary about the birth control pill is this, and that is that our hormones nudge and flip switches in our body, like from head to toe. And when you change a person's hormonal profile, it's invariably going to change a whole bunch of different stuff that's going on in their body that can influence who they are and the way that they experience the world. Um, and that it's important to understand what those range of effects are. So that way, you know what you're getting into. Other thing that I think is important to know about the birth control pill is that um, if you do take it during adolescence, when your brain is still developing, we don't yet know because there's not hardly any research on this at all, what mm-hmm. that does to brain development. But I'd be absolutely shocked to learn that it does nothing because hormones are, of course, one of the the key drivers of post-pubertal brain development. I mean, that's like the whole pubertal transition is like orchestrated by our sex hormones. And so the idea of suppressing women's sex hormones during this time when they're in this transition period um, and the brain is remodeling itself based on directions being given by the hormones, I just don't think that it's that smart 
um, to be um, going on the pill for reasons other than contraception um, during your teen years when your brain is developing. And so um, knowing that there's a possibility of long-term effects of pill use during adolescence, but we just don't know yet. And so just being aware of that. And then lastly, if you do take it in adulthood, so you're like 20 and older and your brain is done developing, most research seems to suggest that everything goes back to normal. And I think that that's really important for women to know too, um, because I think that there's a lot of women who are afraid to be on it when they would be better served being on it um, because they're afraid that this going to cause some long-term effects for them. But the research really just doesn't support that. And it seems that most women, after they discontinued the pill, if they were taking it as an adult, that they'll generally be back to their normal sort of hormonal profile and they'll feel about the same within a month or within a month or two. I know people that were on the pill and they were also on antidepressants as well. That doesn't, to me, it didn't seem like a really wise position to be in considering what the pill can do as well as the antidepressants, especially on on the brain function. Was I right in thinking that? Well, yes and no. So like on the one hand, you know, like if you look at the pill and you look at antidepressants, um, both of those things are bad for libido, for example. So I can imagine that the people who are on both of those things, that it's got to just be the worst, like in terms of like a sexual wasteland, you know, just like, you know, just complete indifference about sex. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we know that mental health side effects are seriously common for women who are on hormonal birth control. And for some of those women, um, going on antidepressants is palliative and so it makes them feel better. My suggestion would be to somebody who's on the pill and is considering going on antidepressants is first to consider changing their birth control. Um, because what I've been hearing from a lot of women is that they had a narrative about themselves that they were depressed or that they were anxious and that they believed this to be true. But um, then they went off of hormonal birth control and they realized that that wasn't who they were and that they were just having an effect, you know, the side effect to the pill. And so I think that that um, is worth noting. How many birth control pills are there? The different there's like a, there's almost a hundred different formulations that are out there Whoa. Like when, i know when you look at the, the like the modality of entry right because you've got pills you've got patches you've got a vaginal ring you've got a hormonal iud you've got a shot you've got an implant and and so that's just the modalities and then there's three there's there's four different generations of progestins which are the type of the synthetic just progesterones that are in there And within each of those, there's about two different types of each type of progestin. And then you've got different dosages. And some of them have estrogen and the progestin. Others are progestin only. And so there's almost a dizzying array of options that are out there. And so this is one of the reasons that it's so hard to know how people respond to the pill or Mm -hmm. to control because there's so many different types. And it's like everybody's going to have a different response to everything that they try which is why like for women who are motivated to be on hormonal birth control, if they're having a terrible time, my recommendation is that they go to their doctor and try something else. Cause there's like a hundred different formulations to choose from. And I give some recommendations. I, I wrote an article 
and it's, it's, it's free. It's, I think it's, um, it's not behind a paywall. It's called how to choose the least worst birth control. And it's about like, what are some of the ways to troubleshoot whatever your prescription is? And so I recommend that people check that out if they're interested in trying something different and they want to make sure that they're trying something that's in a different category than the one that they're currently on to see whether or not it it's better for them. And then if they've exhausted all the options, just get off it altogether. <laughs> get off it, try something else. Yeah. yeah. There's not a lot of options, unfortunately. Like we don't, we're not living in a world where women have this vast array of options for non-hormonal birth control. And I think that that's another sort of important thing um, for women to understand is that, you know, we need to push for better options and we need to be vocal with our doctors about the fact that we like, this is unacceptable. We need more options. And then doctors will put, talk to the drug reps who come and visit them and say, we need more options. The drug reps will communicate with the people who were, I mean, we just need pressure put on people who are in charge of R and D that they need to come up with some better and additional types of options when it comes to contraception for women. Where can people get a copy of your book, Sarah, and connect with you? Um, they can get the book anywhere that books are sold. So on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Um, and they can connect with me on social. And I'm on all platforms at, um, at Sarah E. Hill, PhD. And that's Sarah with an H. And what's next for you? Like, what are you interested in next? Well, I'm currently, well, so I do some work. Um, I, I work on, I'm, I'm on a couple of different advisory boards for um, scientific advisory boards for different um, women's uh, health companies, like reproductive health companies, which um, has been really great just in terms of being able to um, translate science into um, into things that are useful to women. And I'm working in my research lab and doing um, research on different aspects of hormones and, and women. And we're currently doing um, writing up a big study looking at changes in the inflammatory response and response to birth control. Um, and I'm also working on my next book. And so um, it's going to be another book uh, that's about hormones and, and women, but this one is more specifically focused on the luteal phase and, uh, and PMS and how weird uh, it is. Yeah. PMS. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just weird. Like it doesn't make any sense evolutionarily why women should hate their lives for two weeks out of every cycle. <laughs> and so I, like, I'm trying to um, get to the bottom of the mood related changes that we see across the cycle and what the function of those are and like why they've gotten so bad. And so kind of addressing those issues. Final question. What do you love most about being a woman? What do I love most about being a woman? Oh, um, you know, I'll say this and and this is, if my children ever saw this, this would gross them out. What I love most about being, um, and for me, it's like, it's about being a heterosexual woman. What I like most of being a heterosexual woman is men. <laughs> and I say that as somebody in a committed relationship with an amazing man. Right. Um, but, 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 but I love, I love my, I love, I, yes, I loved being a woman because that means I've been able to be in relationships with men who I also just really enjoy. <laughs> and I don't mean that in like the way that it sounds because I, again, I've been a very committed, this isn't a call for mates. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of, I'm good. 
but rather like when I think about my life and like what has been the most fun part about being a woman, it's, it's been able to be in relationships with men. I love that answer. That is a excellent, excellent answer because I would probably say the same thing about being a man is I love women. So <laughs> it's not a bad thing at all. No, not exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much, Sarah, for yeah. your time, your wisdom, your advice and for making this such an enjoyable conversation. Really do appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 